I mean, DevOps can be a swear word depending on who you talk to. <laughs> it's time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and business for maximum DevOps awesomeness. In this episode, we'll be talking about the idle eye for the DevOps folks. What is this ITIL thing all about? And can it complement DevOps? I'm your co-host, Matt Stratton, at Matt Stratton on Twitter. And I'm your co-host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. This episode is sponsored by VictorOps. From initial alarm to final retrospective, the mission at VictorOps is to make on-call suck less. Easily integrate with your existing monitoring systems and manage on-call schedules with the rules for intelligent routing. In the live infrastructure timeline, get real-time context and see annotated alarms with resolution documentation. And when you're in the firefight, collaboratively troubleshoot using native chat or bi-directional integrations with your favorite chat clients. Visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash VictorOps and sign up for a 14-day free trial to see how they're making on-call suck less. This episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 70 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a 14-day trial at ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog. Joining us tonight for our chat about ITIL is Stephen Boyd. Thanks for making the time to chat with us, Stephen. Can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do? Well, I'm uh, Stephen Boyd. I'm a certified ITIL expert and a federal employee with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office. I'm the service desk problem manager, as well as I manage the major incident process, as well as help the organization find alignment of our processes and procedures with the ITIL framework. So uh, a couple of the reasons we wanted to have this episode is there's definitely, I think, a lot of confusion or misunderstanding within the DevOps community about what ITIL is. And I think the first thing that we really need to be clear about is how to pronounce it. So is it ITIL or IDLE? I usually actually say IDLE, but then nobody knows what I'm talking about. ITIL is pretty ITIL. much the common, but you'll hear, you'll hear people actually say IDLE. Yeah, sounds like I-D-L-E. Yeah, it'll. I've never heard it'll. Uh, <laughs> I, I hear that a lot within the DoD community. Yeah. It'll. It'll. That's awesome. very clear. So, so well, let me be honest and start first of all by saying, well, what is ITIL? <laughs> um, I haven't been exposed to it yet. ITIL is essentially decades of best practices related to IT service management. Originally formed within the, um, the UK. Um, it was part of, part of a government organization to document the best practices that they had found over time to reduce costs and improve efficiencies. And since then, the, the multiple different versions in the latest uh, 2011 version is essentially that, a reorganization or, re or repackaging of best practices that help you align your service management by providing a, a generalized framework. And it's a descriptive framework, not necessarily a prescriptive. Gotcha. Absolutely. And then a little a little background. So so Trevor pointed out that he's never even heard of it before. Well, it's not true, but he has no experience with it, which is fine. He's a dev. <laughs> I've got a little background myself. So I am, you know, I tell 
V3 foundation certified, whatever, which means I took a test and I went to a workshop. Uh, but I actually do have experience implementing uh, ITIL and using it. Actually, what I always, what I found interesting was when I went to actually learn it, I sat there and said, oh, that's what this is. That's that thing we've been doing at Bank One the whole time I worked there. I just didn't know that we didn't invent it. So I have a lot, a lot of exposure with it. And I, I consider myself, you know, pretty, pretty open-minded towards it. I know there's a lot of folks and this will, this is true. I think of any type of practice and in, in any side, I just look what I just did. And I said, any side, any type of area. So, you know, folks within certain cultural movements say, Oh, this way was awful. And you know, whatever came before ITIL was terrible to people who do ITIL and DevOps hates this and everybody hates the agile people. Just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> I actually have a theory, which we may expound upon later, which is that DevOps is really the natural evolution or merging of Agile and, and ITIL, which uh, the theory that I have on that, and people can correct me if I'm wrong, is we, we, did, we did this, we did ITIL, we look at what ITIL has, and it doesn't really accommodate very fast software-based organizations. You know, it's really good for service management and that's what it's built for because at the time when this stuff was happening, you, you know, we weren't in this world where every company is a software company where, where we're in this. And we'll, we'll dig into that in a sec. If that, let's assume that I'm right about that for a second. <laughs> assume. Then we did Agile and in Agile, we said, okay, this is rad. So let's like get the product people and the devs and the testers and all these people working cross-functional. Well, what about the ops people? Oh, well, they're doing their thing over there. So when I think about DevOps and like we actually really in a way it is kind of culturally a, a lot of the the same things and i've seen a lot of stuff that comes out of the devops community i'm like that sounds a lot of like what we try to have tried to do in itil and or this is a lot or a lot of times people say that sounds a lot like agile so i think one of the things that i'm hoping is going to be really illuminating to listeners who don't have an experience or, or, or a background on what what ITIL is all about is to see how there's play, there's ways that we can build on the shoulders of giants and, and understand where it fits, what we can learn from it and where we can apply it. So, I mean, that being said, when, when you think about it, you know, Stephen, just I know this is a very generalized statement, but what are what are the some of the benefits that that utilizing this framework would provide for an organization? What do we get out of it? Well, that's an excellent question, and it, it's it's something that we started to discuss at DevOps DC, or or broached the topic. Now, one of the good things to understand uh, to begin with how idle and idle frameworks going to benefit the organization is to actually understand the certification process. Idle Foundations uh, provides you the vocabulary as well as the overview of the framework. Now, the certifications beyond that are intermediate certificates, and either you have the lifecycle track or the capabilities track, and they're, they're focused on the role in which the uh, person being educated and certified is, is going to be able to apply that information. So the lifecycle is pretty much focused you know, within the life cycle, which is service strategy, service design, service transition, service operations, and continual service improvement. And in the capability stream, you have four different groupings that take the natural alignment of different processes within the life cycles and looks at it at a managerial standpoint on how to, to ac accomplish those type of alignments. We, we have to step back a little and, and define when we're discussing the idle framework, really what are we talking about? Many times I find that when someone refers to idle 
they're really specifically referring to the change management process within Idle. Um, they're not dis- they're not discussing service strategy. Um, they are familiar with service design and service transition, um, and it's within service transition where change management resides in those portions. I, I, I think a big part of the reason for that, not to, not to interrupt, but to your point, I've seen that for sure. Because that's and how it was sold. Because, well, it's how it was sold, but also for a lot of practitioners, that's what they really interacted with, right? So when I talk to people, especially folks who are in an operational role or devs, people who are who see it and they're like, oh, idols about CCRBs and about, you know, or, you know, about, oh, I got to have this change management board and I have to submit a change. You know, my whole life, you know, has been about submitting change control requests that get rejected. Nobody knows what's going on. And there's all these other pieces of it that depending upon your role in the organization, you may not you may or may not directly interact with, but everybody seems to, in one way or another, especially in ops, interact with change management. So I could see exactly. how that is believed to be the part and parcel of the whole thing. Well, exactly. And then that, that's where I think the misconception begins, because a lot of times when a vendor or someone is focused on implementing idle, really what they're talking about is getting control of their change management process and the documentation of the, of the records. So a lot of, a lot of people spend a great deal of time fixating or fixating is a negative word, but, but uh, focusing on the change management process within service transition and trying to get that correct. A lot of, if we get to the point where we discuss service operations and the incident management, problem management process, we'll come back because a great many of the contributing causes to your incidents and major incidents within the service desk are actually procedural mistakes or procedural misalignments or siloing of information or improper documentation of records or using the wrong record type or, or having an incorrect process. When we go back to, to talking about like the idle foundations, the intermediates and the expert level, um, because the expert level is the managing across the life cycle certification, which looks at all of the processes in, in ensures that um, the certification of the individual encompasses the ability to actually create organizational internal um, processes based on the idle framework. The intermediate is more about identifying which process or something is involved with that type of scenario or situation. Um, so there are different bloom levels as you go from foundation to intermediate and expert. And the expert is actually the ability to create. Now, th- there's nothing wrong with, with those people that have intermediate certifications going back and implementing idle. But a lot of times when there is confusion with an organization or there's hate and discontent related to idle, it was normally because the application of what they were trying to do at the idle at the organization was framed as being idle and they failed to align the different pieces and that mismanagement of the alignment reflected negatively on idle as a whole because that's how it was branded or labeled at the organization and a lot of people when they talk about mis- their misgivings about idle they're really talking about a specific implementation of maybe a procedure or tasks or a process at a single organization. And I think, you know, you talked about how 
how the framework is is descriptive versus prescriptive. And unfortunately, if I'm someone who's selling you a thing, it's very hard for me to sell you something that's not prescriptive. And sometimes I think it's okay to be prescriptive within certain places if, if there's, but there's also that the hard part of doing anything, right, is understanding your business. You know, one, one, one idol does not fit all, right? Exactly. And, if you think you're going to buy, you know, we've talked before too about, you know, you can't, you, you don't buy DevOps in a box, right? There's DevOps is a set of practices that have been, that, you know, created by web innovators are being adopted across multiple enterprises, but there's no, you know, uh, Adam Jacob, who uh, from Chef gives a great talk called about DevOps Kung Fu, which says, if you look at Kung Fu, there's many schools of it, but you can recognize it's all Kung Fu, but they're all slightly different. And we believe the same thing about DevOps, which is, you may do it a little different than I do it, but we agree that it's all that. And I would think the same thing is that my my ITIL versus your ITIL versus Trevor's, because we're different organizations, will be implemented maybe in different ways, but it should still be recognizable as, as a, I guess, is I like that's, to think about being outcome focused. And, and would you say that's a fair assessment of the, the point of a framework like this? Actually, uh, that's exactly correct. Idle looks at, at it as triggers that are your inputs and looking at your outputs. And then based on your approach to accomplish your output, you're ensuring that you're having customer satisfaction, you're achieving your, your service level agreements, you're managing your operational level agreements to be able to enable successful outcomes. So I want to think a little bit about the, you know, and again, I, what we've done is we, you know, we reached out, we, we've gotten quite a bit of feedback from our, from our listeners, both, you know, whether it's been through Reddit or through Twitter, or just sort of me chatting with some, some folks on Slack, just to get some, cause I wanted to get a pulse of what people were, were thinking about. So, so some of these questions may, and, you know, we talked during the green rooming time already a little bit about how some of them were, were maybe not, not quite from that understanding. That being said, so one of the questions was, so how would an organization reconcile what, and I'm just, saying is listed the the risk aversion tendencies of, of ITIL with the idea of fail fast, fail small approach of, of agile or DevOps. Is ITIL actually even about risk aversion in the first place, first of all? No, actual idle is more about risk management and uh, classifying the types of changes that you're intending to implement. Having your once you understand the risk and you're willing to accept it then that's when you would actually create a standard change, which means it has the approval and it doesn't need to go to your cab authority every single time to receive approval. It's been a standardized change. It's not necessarily risk adverse. Idle framework is more about ensuring that you're documenting everything that you're doing so that you have traceability to come back and identify which change led to the manifestation of the symptoms within service operations and, and resulted in, in an incident or maybe um, an exception type event. So you can have that type of correlation so you can look at contributing causes when you're investigating a problem. So most of what you're going to do within idle for the service transition and within the change process is about proper documentation so that risk can be assessed, not necessarily averted. Now, the context of the question seems to be that idle takes too long, idle prevents me from doing something. But really what they mean is the change process that the organization is following is not aligned or the procedures and activities are not effective or efficient 
to allow them to quickly assess the risk, approve the risk, and implement what they're trying to do. But that's the organization's implementation. I, IDLE doesn't say delay a, uh, the approval of a request until it takes you too long to be able to implement something quickly. Idle's about looking at your efficiencies, um, determining where you need your decision points, assuring your decisions are, are, are occurring and they're being documented properly. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that's the, you know, sort of being able to assess assess risk and where that process comes in is when you're when you're thinking about a culture or a, a, a software driven organization that's wanting to be able to. Um, to automate through a lot of this this testing, and that may be a thing that kind of works a little bit into creating it in the, the terms of a standard change, which may be, hey, it's actually considered a standard change, provide, or it's provided that it passes our automated compliance and security and standardized test piece because anything when we're talking about being able to decrease our cycle time within moving from idea to value it's it's every place we put a human gate you know because humans are slow and it's not to say that human gates aren't required it's a matter of i always look at it to say i want to put a human where it's something that requires an actual human to do it right where it's requiring human judgment or it's requiring an actual thing it's not something we can we can test for automatically in that case and maybe that's a way if i'm Getting that right, you know, it could be saying a standard change does not necessarily have to be defined as it's standard because we wrote down that every time you do this, you're going to push these two buttons and type these five commands and copy this file from there. It could be defined as it's standard because all of these lights are green that we have all agreed mean that its risk is minimal. Oh, exactly. Is, okay. The risk is acceptable. Yeah. So unless That's what I should have said not minimal, acceptable, because it could still be high risk, but low impact. And that may be considered an acceptable risk. We talk about that a lot, right? Like the difference of just because something, you know, something could have a high chance of getting messed up, but its impact could be incredibly low. Like you'd be like, well, it's probable that this thing's going to break. But if it does, it's going to affect like one one thousandth of our users for five seconds okay, maybe we'll take that. Or there's a very small percentage of a chance that this is going to happen, this is going to break, but if it does, it's going to set the whole building on fire. So the risk on that second one is actually potentially possibly a less acceptable risk because its impact is so much higher, even though its probability is so much lower. Yes, and the risk tolerance is specific to the organization about which level of risks are they willing to accept. Now, the process, though, has to be aligned with your incident and problem management processes so that if you start to see an increase in incidents, you can make that correlation and potentially identify the causation right to a specific change potentially yep. and then communicate that information back to the cab for improved decision making. So if right. you don't Which have those flows, you have silos of information and now you're not making a real risk assessment. Right, where we talk a lot when we we talk about you know things like blameless postmortems. I know this is getting into an area of your expertise, which is great. Is what we don't want to do, at least you know, kind of the the, the thought on it. And you know, from you read Sidney Decker and everything, is people are going to make mistakes. You're not going to cure people of making mistakes. What we want to do is say, how can we continue to enhance our system to improve that? So if you've said, okay, we define that if these all of these automated tests are passed, then it's acceptable risk. But like you said, we tie it back and say these changes 
are actually causing these problems that are happening, then it means we have to reevaluate the system. It's not even necessarily going back and saying the thing you, the code you wrote, Trevor, was awful and you broke the thing. It's actually saying our system was messed up because it should have caught it. Now we know that and we can make the standard change even safer. Uh, what's a, what is CAB in this context? That's your change approval board. Okay. That makes sense. Going back to the blameless postmortem, actually within the problem management process and uh, the major incident processes that, that I've ran in the past, at the end of the major incident process, we have what a, uh, we've called in the DOD was an after action report. That's a pretty common term after you know, something occurred documenting what happened. So that's akin to a blameless postmortem, which is your trigger if you need to, into your problem management process, because that's the first place you're going to look. And within the problem management processes that I run and I, I design for the organization, it involves a preliminary analysis where you go in and you, you look in scope exactly what type of problem investigation are you intending to begin. And then you'd have your decision whether there's a viable business reason to actually pursue it. So this this goes back to what we were talking about, the blameless postmortem. It's more about learning. How do, how do we make our process better so that the system does catch it the next time, like you're saying, Matt? How, how do we learn from what we've seen so that we don't make the same mistake again? Hopefully, we're making different mistakes and, and we're avoiding them altogether. But within idle, especially problem management, you're not looking just to prevent issues. That Obviously, that's the goal. But problem management's activities are also to minimize, mitigate, or otherwise reduce the impact to the users to improve the value that's being delivered. And, and most times within instant management, they're, they're only looking at the restoration of the services or implementing a workaround or something like that. Um, not too many organizations actually go into developing their problem management. They, they, they tend to focus on change management because most vendors will tell them that's where the majority of their incidents are, are going to be created from. Is a either an improperly documented change, an undocumented change, or a change was approved that shouldn't have been. So if you have stronger change management controls, you're able to reduce the number of incidents you're seeing. But in a fail small, fail fast type of environment, you're going to have those incidents. So it's how quickly can you take that information from what you're seeing, what's being manifested within service operations, and feed it back into your development design process to be able to overcome whatever you've just introduced. Which I think makes a lot more sense. Because the thing is, again, I guess if you're focusing, like you said, the way it's been pitched to the, well, if you add more rigor to your to your cab and to your change management process, you're going to reduce incidents. You're actually putting in even more human requirements into that system, right? Because I think about my experiences with cabs and stuff. And, and to be honest, the vast majority of them were to making, making sure that nobody was trying to change a thing at the same time as another thing. You know, uh, because you have people who could we were in a world where you can't understand all of the ramifications of all the things that could happen. But I'd much rather be able to make my decision based upon the results of something automated that sits there and says, rather than me looking at it and you saying, hey, Matt, I'm going to do this is what I'm going to do. And I can say I can read that and it sounds legit or sounds logical or not. 
if you can point me to and say, this is the change we made to the system. And we did it using this automated way. We had an automated verification that went in that shows you the before and the after, whatever, if it's something like that, without not trying to like dig into a tool thing. Again, it's to the point of, I can then sit there and say, actually, even though I may not understand all of the very specific internals because our systems are so complex, I can see that before you did a thing, stuff wasn't broken. After you did the thing, stuff is continues to not be broken and you're doing this in a repeatable way not a i'm going to sit down and bash at the keyboard kind of way so i have a great level of you know because otherwise all we're doing is just make it's just depending on our people to be smarter and know more about even more complex more and more complex systems and trevor i i misspoke earlier uh the cab is the change advisory board uh, not to change approval board, but uh, so the, the advisory portion is back what you're, you're saying, Matt, is how much of the information that you can obtain throughout, throughout the normal operations can you feed back in to make better decisions? Um, not necessarily looking to stop or, or prevent the implementation of something, but to be able to say this implementation caused this type of situation. Now, we live in the environment where we don't always get to control which security patches we're going to have to implement. So you've designed something and now they've gone and, and they're going to address a security you know, concern. Now, that might may cause you to have to perform other types of actions or go back and redesign how, how something is communicating with something else. Um, so to be able to understand and track it back to you've, implement, you've implemented or pushed you know, something, and now you need to address what has changed in your environment. Because when you did perform the testing, for whatever reason, the testing didn't show that you had the issue. And that's really tough within problem management is to identify the contributing causes so that you can look at the actual correlation and causations of what you're seeing in service operations. And I think that's where there's a lot of places where, you know, and, and, and in a second, I'm going to ask a question that talks a lot about how things in, in ITIL can fill some some of the gaps in, in the, I hate to say, traditional DevOps approach, <laughs> since it's not that, but it's old enough that maybe we can say traditional. But then likewise, when we think about the where we're at when, it ta- when we talk about automation and tr- truly treating our systems in a codified way, those differences in being able to say, like you said, you know, that problem resolution is really challenging when you're like, well, wait a minute. So what happened? Why did that? You know, I always like to say, you know, I've been in ops my whole life. So it's how much time I've spent on the, it worked in QA. Why didn't it work in prod? And if I'm every time I have a human doing anything um, <laughs> manually with a system, that's when I know I can't trust it anymore. You know, as the great Mark, Mark Burgess quote of the, every time someone logs interactively into a system, they compromise everybody's understanding of that system. So anyway, my point being is that's a thing that the, the growth around automation and, and being able to track those things I could see as being something to make it easier because there's less manual steps to try to track down that a human being did a thing and being able to compare versions of infrastructure and say, okay, this is what it did look like at this time. But that, that going into one of the things, so our, our, our good friend, Dustin Collins, who was on the show recently, he said, you know, he, had, he said, again, coming from his admittedly shallow understanding of, of ITIL, but he says it, he sees it, or his understanding is it helps clearly define roles. 
one of the problems that that sometimes we see in cross-functional teams that have adopted DevOps is that sometimes, depending upon how the culture is built in the organization, a lack of responsibility structure can cause problems. And the quote is the, if everyone owns it, no one owns it. Again, I found a lot depends on the organization uh, with kind of a, there was a, a, a kind of an infamous or uh, apocryphal talk or event where uh, someone at Etsy was giving a talk about blameless postmortems and someone said, well, how do you make sure that someone, that the people go back and fix the things that you told them to do? And, you know, the speaker kind of said, I don't understand the question. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we just do. That's how we work. But that that's not, that's not, definitely not something that, that scales. So the question is sort of thinking about being, are there parts of Vital we can help to bring in to help alleviate the issue um, with that? And, you know, kind of he's mentioned responsibility matrices, which I think about races, races, yeah, which that was one of those bank one things that I thought bank one invented to learn more. And I was like, okay. so what do you think about? And again, you also I wanted to mention, you know, so you were at DevOps Days DC. So you've had some exposure to the movement and you've been been working with stuff. So where do you see that the the things you know about ITSM and ITIL where maybe um, the things that that the DevOps oriented organizations are doing could be enhanced by by some of these practices around, especially around responsibility, maybe and communication. Well, exactly. I I think idle does have a place within DevOps. Um, they 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 obviously can coexist, but they're really supportive of one another. Or Idle really supports DevOps's approach. A, a proper implementation of Idle would facilitate DevOps. Now, when you were discussing about the identification of roles, it, that is something that that Idle addresses and says should be specified, and that's part of the RACES uh, matrix is the roles. But it it also looks at functions. Um, a lot of times within organizations, people seem to want to see themselves within a certain silo, a certain specific role. And Idle says just because you're a analyst doesn't mean that when you're in part of the change management process, you don't also additionally have this type of role. And you can be assigned that role as part of you know, being grouped into a function that does these types of activities. I I saw a lot in the past um, within the instant management type of of approach where people believe that's all they did was instant management. Problem management was something somebody else did. Change management was a different group that was responsible for documenting that. You know, the designers, you know, dev had, had to do the documentation. That was not part of what you did within operations and idle doesn't approach it that way idle says you are an individual that can be assigned any type of role within any type of the process within the organization and you're going to perform these types of tasks or activities in support of that process I think I was going to say that's that's kind of kind of interesting because I think, um, you know, we talk a lot, you know, again, about breaking down silos and things like that. And I don't think there's anything inherently within the framework that prescribes siloed behavior. And and that was one of the things I, I gave a talk a few years ago about about merging ITIL and Agile when I was at apartments.com and we'll put uh, the link in the show notes. I haven't actually looked at that talk in a while, so I can't speak to whether it's whether I'm going to, you know, 
completely embarrassed myself reading it again. <laughs> but one of the things was how do we sit there and cross over? And while we may have, from a design perspective, you've talked about this, you know, being able to own the process maybe, but even then, one of the things that I remember from working with it, and one of the things I actually really liked about the framework was actually how interdependent all of the different uh, practices really are. It's almost impossible to say I am, and, and it's funny because I do go, I talk to what you've talked about. I see this with my customers all the time when we come in to, to in a pre-sales engagement on, on something and people introduce themselves and say, I run configuration management from an ITIL perspective at this organization. And I'm like, well, do anything with, well, we'll do anything with, no, I do the configuration management. And it's like, but how does configuration management live in a void? Because for people who are listening that don't, aren't as familiar, all these things flow together, right? So like if you have an incident, which is something is causing an interruption in service, right? So you're gonna look back to, and I'm gonna get it all wrong, but just thinking at a high level pseudocode, if you will, we're gonna look at that and, and basically say, can we resolve it using a workaround that we know about? If not, does it turn into a problem? But in order to solve this, I may have to create a change. And well, the change, making a change to configure, I mean, I'm making it really uh, so high Matt, level to think about. Okay. Yeah, so let me stop you. So th that's a, a misconception with an idol. So let me okay. clear that real quick. So one type of record cannot turn into another type oh, of record. Oh, I didn't mean that. Okay, thank so you I, for Exactly, I know. That. That, so that one does perfect. trigger, yeah. but like yeah. you said with the change, one can trigger another. An incident can trigger. A single incident or multiple incidents can trigger a problem. To address that problem may require you to execute a change. Which are tied together. That was the thing I was kind of getting to is that these things all flow together. But thank you for making that. That's a very good clarification that it's not that this becomes that. Exactly. But if I'm making a change, what am I making a change to? I'm making a change to a configuration item, to a thing in my in my to environment that I care about, guy. right? And why am I making this change? I'm making this change. Now, and this is the one thing that I think is, is, that's, is tough to wrap the brain around is that all that flow makes sense when it's regarding thinking about the operational nature of IT as service management management. But when we think about it from software development perspective, that's where to me it always feels like software development, like feature development kind of shoehorns into there because, and this was the challenge we had with, with apartments was how did like a backlog or feature requests feed into, and we ended up kind of having to build a bridge between our uh, agile um, tooling around backlog and feature to say that releases were tied into then change requests because that's what they, and then that's where that kind of hood, hood off there. But we also could have problems. If something was a problem that would then hook back into agile tool that was managing the backlog to say, Hey, product owner, you have something you need to, to work on. Now you need to actually fix this. Yeah. You have so, to address that defect that was discovered. Correct. A defect was discovered. And I think that's one of the things where it gets really kind of a, is, is where that you, you end up having to build that bridge and, and you having more experience in this, obviously than I do is where is the way that those, those kind of fit in, or is that something that it's just the framework itself is not really necessarily intended around that stuff. So you do it somewhere else, but you build a really nice connection so that they're, they are talking to each other in your process. Well, exactly. Idle is not going to dictate how you do your approach. As long as you're looking at your triggers 
So you understand your inputs and then, of course, your outputs. Idle can be aligned to accomplish what you need to if you determine where those alignment points must be. And th that was something that I brought up at um, DevOps DC. If no one's ever sat down with the organization or helped an organization understand Idle from ideally an expert approach – you've probably never really accomplished true idle or, or seen the alignment points. The difficulties that, that, that the organization may be having, having is they're trying to shoehorn something that is really not conducive overall to the entire process. So it's manifesting itself because you can't get that alignment. So someone has to sit down and say, this is how we do it where we are today. This is what we're trying to accomplish. Idle in the framework says that this is the best alignment points for those type of ac actions or activities or tasks. So how do we make that work better? How do we make that more efficient and more effective? And Idle is going to give you some of the industry best practices of when somebody's approached it. Now, defect management is a big portion of what you're going to need within service transition. Because if you don't have good control of your defects, then there's no way for you to make any type of even possible correlations between what you're seeing in service operations to trace it back to something that you may have seen in testing and you believed you addressed and resolved prior to transitioning it into production. A lot of times you'll see a problem, it'll be a manifestation of something that appeared to have been addressed. And I would, I would, I would agree and understand that. So I think that that goes into kind of the idea that despite, and this is this is true of no matter, and we touched on this earlier, is that you know zealotry in any form is bad, you know, and and I'm saying that this is the right way to do it, you know. So you get this in agile a lot of times. People say, well, agile prescribes that you should not do things that way, and and. The way, or you know, or people would even say, "Well, that's not DevOps to do that," and kind of say that jokingly a lot of times. Say that's very non-DevOps, or even the same thing with with an ITIL. And I think there's probably some areas where that's relatively true, but probably not in the ones that people expect. In fact, one of the ones that people would that probably tell me if this is an appropriate statement is a thing that would be a thing to say is absolutely true about ITIL. And if you're not doing this, you're doing it wrong is to believe that there is the ITIL way to do it. And if you don't do it this way, you're doing ITIL wrong, <laughs> right? You know, exactly. treating it prescriptively is actually, that's probably the one way that you could be wrong. And, and I think what that means, if I'm kind of summarizing it is there's nothing wrong with building on the shoulders of giants. Taking the practices of Agile, taking the practices of, of ITIL, the practices that have been built around the DevOps community and saying, how does my company actually do business, right? Like, what are my problem sets that we need to solve for? And how can I take these 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 best practices that may come in? And there may be parts, I, I think you can pick and choose a little bit, but I think you need to think about it in a holistic and a smart way. Not just it, say, well, I, I, th I, I had a bad experience with a change control board three jobs ago, so damn it, I'm never going to work somewhere that has one, so I'm not going to put one in. Just think about the problem you're trying to solve, right? Well, exactly. And you, you really don't want to subjectively pick and choose which portions of idle you are going to implement. You, you should look at following the framework as much as possible. If you're going to deviate from the best practice, it's because you're piloting 
or you internally have a process that is better than the basic approach that idols laying out in the framework it, it's more of a guide if you build around this framework and you build your own internal improvements or your own little different way to do it as long as you're consistent and as long as you're approaching it in the same way you're going to implement the rest of your idol and in your consistency and your documentation of your records and looking at your inputs and your outputs there's no reason not to modify your idol approach to extend, I think I think that was more I was thinking was not necessarily saying, hey, you know what, I don't want to do this part, but saying I can I can build, I can extend, I can build bridges between them and then figure out or if there's something that swaps in. But again, to your point, it's got to be because you're replacing that that input, the stuff that's happening between the input and the output with something that is more effective for your organization. Exactly, because Idle is going to give you – I don't want to use the word rudimentary, but it's going to give you a bare-bones, best-practice way of achieving that alignment. If you're able to build a better, more improved process, then all it's going to do is create additional value for the users. Listen, this just this reminds me so much of when you know two years ago when I was sitting down and talking to Matt after a meetup, and Matt gave me this this new word that I'd never heard before, that kind of just aligned all the stars that I'd been seeing. Was it a swear word? <laughs> Well, I, I would hope that I didn't need to pick up a new swear word from you. <laughs> yeah, I, didn't know. Yeah, I should learn them from you. <laughs> oh, that. Um, but that that that's what this feels like to me is that these all these different component practices that I've seen elements of that kind of like you said build up this framework. So one of the questions that came up, and I, I don't think we need to go super deep in it, but it's just kind of a thought, and it goes back to the idea that. It's implementation versus concept. But someone asked, and they said, how can you fit things like a CMDB in environments when your infrastructure is volatile? What's worth documenting? And so the first thing for listeners who don't know, your CMDB is your configuration management database or your, you know, basically it's your your big thing that says, here's all the things I care about and all the information about them that I care about, whether and those are configuration items can be computers, they can be people, they can be files, they can be all the things. And the thing that's challenging, and this has been my experience, is any, I'm going to make a very global statement, but I believe it's true. Any CMDB that requires manual updates is about as valuable as the bits that it's written onto, you know, uh, because it's like, updating a way, you know, we talk about this a lot. Like, let's say I even keep a wiki updated with how I configure my servers. That's only as good as what, ha with the way those systems looked exactly when I did that. That being said, I think it's, not only do I think, I know from experience that it's absolutely possible if you're using some, if you're, so again, if you're in a DevOps kind of a world and you're saying, okay, we're treating our infrastructure as code, I'm using something like Chef or Puppet or something like that to manage my systems, those, that can help populate your CMDB with what's actually accurate. It's not a discovery scenario, because heaven knows, I know when I've, anything that has to reach out and do a whole bunch of discovery is going to take six days to go and crawl my whole network and then that's out of date. But I think there's ways that you can populate that by information you already have. 
I think the the challenge, and this is, you know, Stephen, just wanted to see what you think about this, is is realizing, and this is just true of a CMDB in general, is I think it's very possible, very easy to go way too deep into the amount of information and the level you're capturing about items when the reality may be you got to think about what are the things I actually even care about, right? And, do, and especially, I guess, in an ephemeral world, certain things, I mean, I'll give one, one kind of an example. When I was at the bank, and this was in kind of when we were coming into virtualization in the first place, we had, uh, and it was part of us trying to understand how VMs were going to work. When you would create in our in our database, which I didn't know was called a CMDB at the time, but it was, you'd have an item for each operating system instance, and then you, and we we already knew about things like LPARs and WPARs from AIX and 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 zones and stuff, and so you know, and so w- one of the things would be the parent of it. It would say, oh, well, this you know, LPAR is on this actual AIX server or whatnot. But the problem is then we went in there and we started using VMware and we said, okay, so this VM is hosted on this, you know, this ESX server. Well, the problem is within VMware, if you're using vCenter at the time, I mean, those VMs could move around all day long. You know, they would be on one host in the morning and another one in the afternoon, potentially. And what was happening is anytime we wanted to go and do a VM migration from one host to another to balance, it was actually an entire change control process because it required touching the CMDB. And it made it to the point that you could not do automatic uh, compute balancing within VMware, you know, where VMware does that, then again, I'm not, you know, this dynamic resource scaling where it would say, whoa, whoa, we got a bunch over here. And I think it was a learning experience of saying, at the time that we built this database of information we cared about, this was stuff that made sense to us. Our world has changed. So instead of saying, let's keep trying to shoehorn the fields that we care about, what actually do I care about? with my items. Do I care about the operating system on it? Probably. Do I care about the serial number of the hard drive? Maybe not. I don't know. What do you what do you think? What's been well, your thoughts or experience on that? From an idle standpoint, it's very easy. You document whatever's gonna create you value. Whatever's gonna allow <laughs> yeah. you to deliver value. Now from a problem management standpoint when you're doing investigations and you're trying to scope it, the more information you can have to identify why you're having a specific symptom or issue to a subset of your enterprise or your product or your services or your users, the more information you have to look at the deltas between who is who is being affected or who's not or which which components affected and which components not you're able to uh, appropriately scope it if you're unable to appropriately scope the issue that you're investigating, then you really don't know how to properly prioritize it because you can't assess the impact and the urgency of it. So your CMDB should help you do a lot of things. Um, one of the most vital pieces is allowing you to scope your your issues within your enterprise to know where you need to be devoting your resources. An idle framework looks at managing your resources to a way to allow you to ensure that you're delivering value to the users. And I think that's a key point you made right there, which is what's the point of ha- of the CMDB existing other than there's someone who owns it and it's their job. And so that being said, if the point of con- of capturing this data or of having this data available is is it's invaluable in your, like you said, in your scoping and your understanding, then you have to be able to trust that data, 
right? Because if if it's saying, okay, the way that I know this gets updated is it's some intern's job, you know, goes and does this. I'm like, eh, you know, but if I if I know it's coming from a trusted source, that is actually Again, you'll, you'll see, I'm, I'm a believer in there's, there are certainly lots of things that only human beings can do. I, I think that's the thing I want people to, 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 to bear in mind is that treating your infrastructure as code and treating it dynamically does not replace the need for being able to capture that information and the things complement each other substantially. And I think that goes back to your thing. You know, ITIL does not necessarily re- replace DevOps nor vice versa. They can be very complementary practices when truly understood, I think. Now the tooling that the vendors want to sell you on either side of the equation may add up and look differently, but hey, I'm a vendor and I'll even tell you that, that that Thanks. can be hard. When we're trying very hard to not be that vendor ourselves, to not be the vendor that says, hey, come and buy the DevOps um, because that doesn't work so well. So uh, that's what I brought up at, at DevOps DC was, would you accept DevOps in a box? If not, why would you accept idle in a box? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. That was a great quote, and that that's going to get that's a, that's a pull quote for this episode for sure. <laughs> so uh, we're, we're we're running close on time. I wanted to talk about. Uh, two things. One was, you know, we've kind of danced around talking about incident and problem and root cause. And I wanted to think if there is anything, you know, thinking about a lot of of taking those things that you've got good practices around and what's been either your experience, maybe you've seen or from people you've talked to or just your thoughts about how, you know, we already alluded to blameless postmortems, but being able to take some things that become common patterns like chat ops or blameless postmortems and, layering them into the, the, you know, kind of descriptive things and your own particular experience around doing uh, problem and service restoration type of ac- activities. Uh, we, we don't have time for that today. Okay. Well, maybe, well, always, <laughs> That'd be a separate one. DevOps. This is how every episode ends. Is we're like, we'll have to have a follow-up episode. <laughs> yeah, we would uh, have to. Now, um, on that, uh, a lot of the organizations now, be, because we're, we're trying to provide services to a greater number of users, and we're trying to facilitate the value that the customer, the bill payer, is asking us to, to make available or the service to deliver to the users, we, we have to be more efficient and more effective on how we do that. Incident management is one of the areas where we see an indication or record or documentation of our either inability to provide the service that, that we should be or some type of difficulty in the user being able to experience the service that we're providing. And I'll, I'll roll this back up uh, into the idle framework is continuous service improvement is a big portion of of idle as well as DevOps. Continuing to look at improving the service so you can increase the value that you're providing. So how you go about achieving that within DevOps and idle is going to be a continual approach of integrating best practices and piloting concepts and looking at those process improvement areas. And like you said, that that's where they where idle and DevOps should coexist together, and one should support the other, and they're pretty much symbiotic. Uh, you know. You know what? I couldn't think of a better way to to wrap up the conversation because two of the things that are actually really the most important to both of these 
approaches is that idea of wrapping the whole thing around continuous improvement. And that's, you know, we're, we're, we're more alike than we're different is the lesson <laughs> of the, the lesson of the night. So we're going to move into our checkouts of which we only have Trevor because I forgot to tell Stephen we do that and I forgot to do one. So Trevor, what's your checkout that you were so excited to share with our listeners? Well, uh, it's goddamn adorable. That's what it is. Uh, check out uh, Yoshi's Woolly World. It's a it's a new game for the Wii U, and it is goddamn adorable. <laughs> gotcha. Thank you for that. Uh, as you may recall, um, we now have a new section on the show. When we give a podcast suggestion, we were certainly not the first to come up with having a DevOps podcast. In fact, as far as I know, the first is our friends John Willis and Damon Edwards at the DevOps Cafe, which you can find them on iTunes, but you can also go check them out at devopscafe.org. This is a show that has a really special place in my heart. I would not be doing any of the things I'm doing today. I would not be doing this show. I would not be working at Chef. I would not be I would not be knowing Trevor at all. So well two out of three ain't bad of good things that are that DevOps Cafe has brought to my life. Ooh. And <laughs> I'm a little wound up on Mountain Dew. The uh, but I when I wanted to learn when I first was wanting to learn about DevOps, I started listening to this show and I understood about 10% of what John and Damon were talking about, but I forced myself through to just let their their stuff, maybe I figured by context, I'd eventually start to understand it. And in a lot of ways, we started this show because of DevOps Cafe, because we wanted to be able to be that show that that I wanted years ago and knowing that not everybody is as uh, bullheaded and stubborn as I am to push through that stuff. Uh, they are both super busy folks. And so the episodes come out when they do, but every time they do, it's, it's some of the best uh, DevOps podcasting that's out there. So check out DevOps cafe. If you haven't checked out our new website, uh, you should come check it out at arresteddevops.com. Uh, we'd love if you'd tell us what you think about it. Uh, any issues with the site can be logged using the issues tab across the top. I just or- added that today. Amazing. I know. Continuous <laughs> delivery of Arrested DevOps. <laughs> oh, the eggs 365 just chimes yes. through there. <laughs> you could also uh, or just you can email us at shows at arresteddevops.com with your feedback. <laughs> I'd definitely like to know uh, what your experience is like with that. We've rebuilt the whole thing. We're hoping it's faster and easier to navigate. And also, we wanted to really prove to the world, if you didn't know already, that Matt is not a front-end web designer. Um, but what we do have is a newsletter. You can subscribe to it at arresteddevops.com slash banana stand. It's the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We also have an iPhone app if you dig that kind of thing. And you can download it for free at arresteddevops.com slash iPhone. Which reminds me, uh, we're we're signed up to become one of the first podcasts in Google Play Music when Google Play Music Never. launches podcasts. Which I think is supposed to be like months from now, actually. But we'll oh, I thought out. it was sooner than that, but we'll find yeah. out. It's exciting for me as well, a we did. Android we just user. got approved. We just got approved. So when you're when you're <laughs> looking for when that comes out and you're looking for new podcasts in Google Play Music, we'll be there, but we won't be a new podcast for you because you're already listening to us. So Exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank our sponsors, won't you, Trevor? <clears throat> I was about to. Thanks to our sponsors. Be sure to visit them at arresteddevops.com slash victorops and arresteddevops.com slash datadog. Thanks, Stephen, for joining us. 
Uh, it was a pleasure. And thank you to our loyal listeners. If you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we'd appreciate it if you would visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store or in Google Play if they let you do that later. However that stuff works, we'll find out. Uh, we would love to know what you thought of this episode. Please leave us comments at ArrestedDevOps.com slash ITIL. Like we said, you know, we're on Twitter at ArrestedDevOps. We love your tweets. We love to talk to our listeners. Uh, and if you ever happen to run into us at a conference, we'll take a picture with you because we're dorks like that. Um, but we are especially happy to get your input ideas and feedback. And you can send that to us at shows at arrestedevops.com. Let us know any ideas you might have for future episodes. I'm Matt at Matt Stratton. And I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We're Arrested DevOps. And remember, there's always DevOps in the banana stand. Oh.